at the end of November, um, right before we went into Advent, I said that we were going to spend some time camping out in the upper room, that upper room discourse in John's Gospel. And uh, we did that during the Advent season, and uh, we're actually going to continue with that until we get through chapter 17. That's where Jesus goes to the garden, and then we will consider going back to Matthew's Gospel. Um, Our reading this morning, so you've got plenty of time to turn there, is John chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. And actually, we're going to be the second half of verse 4. We read the first half last time. So the second half of verse 4 through verse 15. Um, last time we gathered and we looked at uh, the end of chapter 15, Jesus was pretty much guaranteeing the disciples that things were going to start going badly for them. That, that things were going to be ramping up in the, the area of persecution. And that their first the first persecution they suffered would be from the Jews. Now, if you think about what happens in the book of Acts after Jesus ascends, right, there isn't a whole lot of persecution through until chapter 4, chapter 5, I think it's chapter 5 of the book of Acts, where you have John and Peter going into the temple and they heal a man who's been lame since birth. And that causes priests to get interested, so they get dragged before the Sanhedrin, and they get flogged, and they get told not to talk about Jesus anymore, and then they go back to the rest of the church, and the church prays for boldness to continue preaching, to continue sharing what Jesus taught. Not long thereafter, we start seeing the persecution, like the execution of Stephen, the execution of James, uh, James' brother of John, not James' brother of Jesus. Um, so the, the persecution came from the Jews, and the biggest reason for the persecution was because these were Jesus' followers. It's not because they were breaking the law. It's not because they were doing illegal things in the Roman site. It's not because of anything other than they accepted Christ, or Jesus, as the Christ. And the Jews were opposed to that. And he ended that part of the discourse there with the first part of verse 4, where he said, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, he says, I'm, I'm letting you know about this stuff now so that when it happens, you can think back and say, oh, that's right, Jesus told us this was going to happen. Instead of thinking man, I wish somebody had told us this was going to happen. So this is where we're picking up this morning in the second half of verse 4. So I'm going to invite everybody to stand like we normally do because I told you I was going to keep you on your calisthenics for the, for the day. I mean, you've got to get some exercise at least once a week, right? I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, as we go into this passage this morning and we study what may be one of the hardest hardest topics for us to wrap our heads around, the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, I pray that the Spirit would open our eyes and open our ears. Uh, and Father, help us to understand what we need to know about the work of the Spirit in the church. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. So the first thing I want you to do is put yourself in the shoes of the disciples in the upper room. Okay? Two and a half, two and three quarter, two and seven eighths years, these guys have spent every day with Jesus. And it wasn't until probably the last six months or so of his ministry when he really started informing them of what the culmination of his time on earth was going to look like. When Peter made the, the Caesarea Philippi confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. And now I must go to Jerusalem where I'm handed over to the Gentiles and I'll be crucified. And Peter says, uh-uh, right? So, at that point, he starts letting the cat out of the bag. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be executed. And they argue with him. And then I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be hand over and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die. And they don't get it. And then again, and then they ignore it. They just completely, they just don't pay attention to it. Here, in the upper room, in Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's, it's one thing when Jesus says, when the time is right, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to die, right? That's in the future. That's, that's a can we can kick down the road. They're in Jerusalem right now. They know that the authorities are plotting to get rid of Jesus. They know that Jesus just told them that somebody of their number is going to go betray him to the authorities. He's, he's already established the Lord's Supper where he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken. Wait. It's now becoming real. It is now becoming inevitable. They're starting to wrap their heads around the idea that something bad is really close to happening. And then, after he says that, that the new covenant is established in the, 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 the bread and, and 
the wine, the, his body and his blood, and that he's returning to his father, then he says, oh, by the way, because you're my followers, you're going to be despised. You're going to be hated. You're going to be chased out of the synagogues. You're going to be killed by people who think they're doing God a favor. As the reality of this all sets in, there's probably some of them wondering, why didn't we get this information a little bit sooner? Why didn't we hear about this in Galilee when maybe we could have done something to stop it from happening? Why didn't we hear something about this? And, and let's be honest, and I'm not picking on Peter, I'm picking on humanity here. Why didn't we hear something when maybe we would have had the option of changing our mind? <laughs> this isn't what I signed up for. I agreed to follow this Jesus guy because he's a really good teacher and because I really like the message that he's sharing with everybody and because I really think he's, he's the guy that I think he is. But I didn't sign on to be executed. I didn't sign on to have my family and friends turn against me. I didn't sign on for this. Why didn't he let us know that he expected us to walk into the lion's den without him? Now you think about it, you think about Jesus' ministry. There have already been a couple of times where Jesus sent the disciples out without him, right? But he was still there waiting for them to come back to. He was still alive, he was still present. And now, he's not. He's going to be gone. And so Jesus answers the question before they even ask it. I didn't tell you because I was with you. I didn't tell you all this stuff because I was here. These worries, these cares, these concerns weren't necessary in your life. They didn't need to know the future. Now there's, there's a little bit of common sense wisdom in here for us. All right. Um, a lot of people in this world spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the future holds for them. Every newspaper, for those that are still in print, and the ones that are on the web, offers a horoscope section. Because people want to know what the future holds for them. There are entire pages of Scripture that tell us we're not supposed to try to figure out what the future holds. Why? Because that's not our concern. That's outside of our purview. That is not our realm to worry about. The fear of the unknown motivates people to do all kinds of things, most of them prohibited by Scripture, in order to figure out what tomorrow holds. Ouija boards, magic eight ball, right? People even use the Bible to do it. People, people do all kinds of oddball things to, to figure out. It's, it's really interesting when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. Now, these are Jewish men. They grew up in the synagogue. They knew the Psalms. They knew the prayers of David. They knew how to pray. 
And yet they went to Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray. So he did. He taught them a model prayer, not to be recited blindly, not to just be quoted over and over and over again, though it's a great passage of Scripture to quote, but a model for prayer. This starts with adoration, recognition of who God is, right? And then petitions for deliverance from sin, for for provision. But when he teaches them to ask for provision, it is give us this day our daily bread. Now, there's there's a tie-in there with the Exodus. When, when the Israelites are wandering through the desert and they're grumbling because they did that all the time, right? Moses, we're going to starve to death out here. Okay, you think God is going to deliver you from Egypt and not feed you? Quit your whining. He will deliver food. And so God says, okay, Moses, here's what you need to tell the people. Tomorrow morning, they're going to wake up and there's going to be bread. It's going to be the best thing they've ever tasted. I baked it myself. But there's only going to be enough for one day. They're going to go out there and they're going to try to hoard this stuff. They're going to go out there with mason jars and suitcases and they're going to try to hoard this stuff. Tell them not to collect more than today's bread. Except for the day before the Sabbath, then they can collect two days because I don't want them to work on the Sabbath. And sure enough, they wake up the next morning and there's manna all over the place. So what do they do? They go out, they gather up enough for today, and then they start hoarding it into jars. And tomorrow when they open the jars, what happens? It's moldy and rotten. Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily provision. Lord, give me what I need to get through today. Because if give me what I need to get through tomorrow... Today, by the time tomorrow gets here, it may be rotten. It might not be worth anything. Because none of us is tomorrow. Tomorrow can take care of itself. Jesus says that. He says, don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow can take care of itself. Worry about today. And don't worry about that. Give it to God. Ask Him to get you through today. And then move on. But we don't do that. (laughs) We're supposed to be focused on the day that we have. So here, as Jesus is, is saying all this stuff, the disciples have turned their thoughts to that unknown. They're they're trying to think ahead. Well, what are we going to do if Jesus is really not here with us? Now, what they're thinking is Jesus is going to die. Now I know he has told them, I'm going to die, and then on the third day I'm going to be raised. But the only person they've seen raised was raised because Jesus did it. If Jesus is dead, who's going to raise him? Okay, so if Jesus ain't there to raise him and he's dead, what happens to dead people? They stay dead. They're expecting when Jesus says he's not going to be with them anymore, he's talking about death. He's talking about dying. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the emphasis of what he's talking about. If nothing else, Jesus has a very, very good sense of what people are thinking and feeling. Um, Whether that's an ability to read emotions on a person's face, we all have that to some degree or another. Guys, we tend to have it worse than ladies do because 
We, we can be oblivious from time to time, right? But we have an ability to see what people are thinking. And Jesus knows these men. And He knows that they are full of sorrow. And He knows that that's going to lead to, to worry about the things that they don't know. So he, he says something that I don't think the disciples understood. And I, I don't think they understood because they're still in this idea that Jesus is saying he's going away, which means he's going to die. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. What? Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to walk around with Jesus? Have you ever thought how much easier your faith might be if Jesus was right there? Right? If you had seen him feed the 5,000, if you had watched him rape Lazarus from the dead, if you had seen him touch the leper and the leper is suddenly cleansed or, or even the, the, the spitting in the mud and, and putting it on the eyes of the blind man and the blind man can now see sticking his fingers in the ear of the guy that was deaf, and now he can hear, right? You ever thought that that would have been, that had to have been the pinnacle of the Christian life? Jesus says, no, it's better that I'm not with you. What? It is for the, it is to our advantage that he left. Not that he died. That's, that's different. Okay. Now let me, let me deal with that first. Okay. Because Jesus died, the debt for sin is paid, which means people can be saved. That's good. That's the good news, right? Yay. Okay. When he says that he's leaving, he's talking about going to the Father. He's talking about that post-ascension thing. You know, where, where Luke tells us at the end of his gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts, that when Jesus ascended, the disciples stood around like this. Until an angel showed up and said, what are you guys doing? Well, Jesus just, yeah, what did he tell you to do? Oh, yeah, yeah, we have things to do, yeah, Right? He's talking about his ascension to the Father is his going away. Because when he died, he was gone for three days. And then he came back and freaked everybody out. The reason he says it's to our advantage is because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is God, right? Okay. God is omnipresent. Present everywhere, right? In his humanity, in his uh, incarnation, right? Was Jesus omnipresent? No. I'm a human being. Where can I be? I can be in one place at one time. There were many times when I was on active duty that I had to go to my boss and tell him, look, I can be here doing this, or I can be here doing this, but as good as I am, I cannot do both. Can't be in two places at one time. Let alone be in every place at every time, right? 
So when Jesus, in His humanity, in His, in, in his, his tabernacling with us, He could be with the twelve as long as they were with Him. But if Peter went off someplace, like when they went to the village of Sychar, and Jesus sat down at the well, and the woman came to get water in the middle of the day, right? Was He with the disciples? No, they'd gone to town to get food. He was at the well by Himself. Jesus says it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit can be everywhere at one time. So that means when I leave and I go get in my truck and and Peggy gets in her car and, and Tim gets in his car, the Holy Spirit can be in all three of those cars even though we're going in different directions at the same time with every believer around the world. There is some some theology here. Jesus says, if I don't go, the Helper won't come. So does that mean that the Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Son? No, I think there's a little bit of logic that we have to follow. If Jesus didn't ascend to the Father, that means Jesus wouldn't have been following the Father's will. If Jesus didn't follow the, uh, follow the Father's will, say that three times fast, He would have been disobedient. If He was disobedient, then He could not have been the perfect sacrifice for our sins. If He wasn't the sacrifice for our sins, then nobody would be saved. There would be nobody for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell with. But Jesus says, and I really, English translators, mm. at the end of verse 7, he says, but if I go, I will send him to you. Remember that word if quite often can be translated as the word since. Since I'm going, I will send him to you. Since I'm going, I will send him. The pronoun for the Holy Spirit is not the word it. The Holy Spirit gets a personal pronoun, not a neuter, impersonal pronoun. The Holy Spirit is a person, thing, the third person of the Trinity, not some disembodied, impersonal force like Eastern philosophy tells us. He is a person who works according to the will of God, because He is God, just as much as the Father is God, just as much as the Son is God. And Jesus calls Him the Helper, the Paraclete, Parakletos, the one sent alongside. The Spirit is sent for our advantage, because the Spirit can be in us and with us, all of us, all the time. Not just sometimes, but all the time. Jesus says that one of the things that the Spirit's going to do is convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, 
the only way they're going to accept the sacrifice of Christ is if they're convicted about the sin in their life. I can't do that. I cannot convict a person of their sin. I can make them feel guilty. I can make them feel pretty bad. Human beings have a, a, a we're skilled at that. I can make somebody guilty. I can make them feel terrible, but I can't bring about conviction. The reason for that is because a lost person doesn't care if they have sin in their life. They don't care if they feel guilty. What they want to know is what can I do, what can I do to eliminate that guilt? Do I got to pay somebody? Do I have to, to, do I, do I have to do a certain dance? Do I have to say a certain prayer? Do I have to, do I have to do something to eliminate that guilt? But that's not conviction. And they certainly would not suffer conviction if I were just to, to confront them with their sins on my own. And so that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. Let's put it this way. What good is the good news if you don't understand the bad news? Without conviction for sin, there's no repentance. Without conviction for sin, there's no need for salvation. And Jesus says that, that the conviction for sin, concerning sin, is because people do not believe in Him. That's the sin Jesus is concerned with. At this point, right here, is disbelief. Not the sin of adultery, not the sin of homosexuality, not the sin of lust, not the sin of greed, not the sin of false witness, not the sin of idolatry, not the sin of blasphemy. The sin of disbelief. The Holy Spirit convicts people because they don't believe in Christ. An unsaved person convicted by the Holy Spirit will understand their true state before God and know that they're helpless. He says the Holy Spirit will judge concerning righteousness. You ever meet a self-righteous person? You ever been a self-righteous person? <laughs> right? Well, yeah, I know I've done some bad things, but it's not like I'm Hitler. I'm not Saddam Hussein. I've never murdered anybody, right? When we compare our life and conduct to anybody other than Jesus, then we have a hope that we might not be that bad. The Holy Spirit compares our life to the life of Christ, who is righteous in everything. And even if a person has not read the, the, the Bible from cover to cover, when the Holy Spirit works, they know they ain't righteous. They know that there's, there's still guilt there that will never be dealt with because they don't have the ability to deal with it. There's only one who is righteous. And then finally, Jesus says the world will be convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, knee-jerk reaction, we read the ruler of this world, we think Satan, right? The prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, the, the king of lies. The... I'm not 100% convinced that that's who Jesus is talking about. I know I, I disagree with some theologians on this point. 
Um, and, and let me clarify that. He's at least not talking about Satan alone. Uh, it is true Satan has been judged. Satan does hold sway over the world. Um, but I, I think you'll get it here. I don't think Satan has a whole lot of work on most of the people in this world. Because without Christ, our nature is what? Sin. Our nature is to be our own God. Our nature is to be our own master of our ship, right? What does Satan have to do to make us enter sin? Nothing. Now, that's not to say that Satan and his minions do not cause sinners to do things that are particularly heinous such as the case of Saddam Hussein or Hitler or Mussolini or Chairman Mao or fill-in-the-blank with any other number of terrible people. But those that's, that's like turning a, a, a little variable resistor inside a radio to get the signal to come in clearer. We're talking just a minor little tweak. It's not like Satan has to change a person's fundamental nature to get them to be that bad. Uh, case in point, take Job. You remember Job? Right? Great fella, poor choice in friends. He was a really righteous, upright, upstanding guy. And Satan is, is roaming around and he comes before God and God says, Satan, what you been up to? And Satan says, oh, you know, I'm just wandering here and there, checking out things on earth, you know. And God says, get this, God's the one who instigates the attack on Job. That does not make God evil. But he says, have you considered my servant Job? Look at this guy. Contrary to his nature, he lives a righteous life. Contrary to what you did to humanity, look at this guy. And Satan says, well, that's just because you've given him everything. God says, okay, fine. Take away everything that he has. Don't touch his life. Don't touch his body. And so his sons and his daughters are killed in a freak tornado. His livestock is stolen by the Chaldeans, right? Now, funny thing about the Chaldeans. They were thieves. So it's not like Satan had to go to the Chaldeans and say, okay, listen, I know this isn't normal for you guys, but I want you to go over here and steal a whole bunch of livestock. What? No. Satan just had to tweak Go steal his livestock. Okay. It was their nature. They were predisposed to that. Satan doesn't have a lot to do to make a sinner live like a sinner. You know, if, if I go to the pet store and I buy a fish, I don't have a lot to do to make that fish live like a fish. It's not like I'm putting it in a bird cage. That would be bad. In fact, when Jesus says the ruler of this world is judged, I really think he's talking more about the sin nature of a person. The sin nature of mankind. See, because he's talking about the world will be judged according to sin, uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Who does not believe in him? People. Concerning righteousness. Who's righteousness? 
people's righteousness. Right? And concerning judgment. Judgment on who? People. Because we live, when we're not in Christ, we live as though we are the master of the universe. Our sin nature is judged right along with Satan. Satan, his little minions, his little demons, his little little puppets, yeah, they've been judged. And they've been condemned for their influence in this world because they do some bad stuff. But the nature of man is also judged. Wrap your head around that for just a minute. We, we, we like to say that we know the end of the story, right? Satan loses. Jesus wins. We know the end of the story. Satan is already condemned. He just doesn't know it yet. Right? So is the sin nature of man. In the Christian, that sin nature is already dead. It just doesn't know it yet. That's why we have to battle against it. That's why we have to fight against it. And I've even heard the, the picture given that it's like we carry around this corpse strapped to our back all day long. And sometimes it starts flopping around and trying to fight with us. And then sometimes we lean back just a little bit and let it get a footing and it takes off the other direction and carries us with it. Just to wrap this up this morning, Jesus says that there are a lot of other things that he needs to share with them. But they're already at the breaking point. If he said anything else to them at this point, if he taught them anything else deep at this point, they'd miss it. They'd, they'd lose it. It'd, be, it'd get lost in the sorrow and, and everything else. Now, there is a little bit more that he tells them starting in verse 16, and we'll look at that next week. But when he says, I've got more to tell you, but right now you can't take it, He's giving them hope. I don't think they catch it. I don't think they recognize it. I have more to tell you, but I can't tell you right now. So either that means it's a little bit longer before he's going to die, or somehow we're going to get these these extra things he's got to share with us. I think this points at at least in part to his post-resurrection appearances where he speaks with and he restores the hope of the disciples. But he also tells them that it's the mission of the Holy Spirit. He says that the Holy Spirit is going to take what is mine and declare it to you. Whatever he hears, he will speak. Where does the Spirit hear things? The throne room. Omnipresent. He is God. The Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth because He speaks what He hears from the Father, just as Jesus only taught what the Father had given Him to teach. The Holy Spirit will, will speak of things to come as the time is appropriate, as the disciples need to know them. My daily bread. Father, give me the Spirit to deal with what I have to deal with today. Not tomorrow. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. 
The Spirit will confirm the things that Jesus taught, which are the things that the Father gave Jesus to teach. And that will be given to the disciples. Now here's good news. We are disciples. We have the promised Holy Spirit too. The part we have to play is to listen and to submit to what the Spirit has to tell us. I would love to tell you that that's the easy part. But you remember that corpse that I was talking about that we carry around on our back? Strong-willed. And quite oftentimes, way too stubborn to not drag us back into that old life. We have to submit. We have to daily submit, sometimes hour by hour, to what the Spirit teaches us, which was taught by the Son, which was given by the Father. So there is a great deal that the Holy Spirit has to offer us. And Jesus said, it is to our advantage that He goes away. So that the Holy Spirit could come, so that the Holy Spirit could be with all of us all the time, so that we could do the mission that He has for us to do. Somehow, somewhere along the way, I'm not sure the church got that moment. 